Well, I know that a good few of you were here with us this morning, and some uh, perhaps not, but we're returning to the book of Job, and as we open up there, if you want to listen along, I'll read you a whole portion from a children's book. It begins this way. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard. And by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. This is from, of course, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good very bad day, which teaches children the lesson that some days are like that, even in Australia. Well, it's a little more lighthearted than the quote we started with this morning, but it still brings the message home that not every day can be a good day. As Longfellow said, into every life, some rain must fall, some days must be dark and dreary. When we left poor Job, we thought it was about as bad as it could get. He'd lost everything, including his wealth and his family. But it's going to take an even deeper turn for the poor fellow. Man, Job would reflect in chapter 5, verse 7, is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now, Job was a man so well acquainted with sorrow, he can write from his experience of, or speak from his experience of unparalleled suffering. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. After this, we read, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Let the day perish on which I was born. A few verses later, he asks in 3.11, Why did I not die at birth? And in 3.20, he says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? He concludes in chapter 3, verse 24, For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear most comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. And I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. As much as this is a depressing theme, it's an amazing one because it really shows us the real world of where people can end up. And it should give us tremendous hope because the Bible does not present a world where everything works out great as long as you follow Jesus. So when you and I, despite our faith in Christ, go through difficult times, we can have confidence that God knows this is the way the world works and He has a plan. But we do see something special and unique in Job. And I brought this up this morning, but I want to emphasize it again because it's so important. Job is not the typical example of what your and my life is going to look like. He's an example to show us what Jesus' life looked like in submitting to God's will and suffering so that he could defeat the devil. This might happen to a certain extent in our lives, but we are likely not going to end up written in fresh scripture as Job was to be this great illustration of God's victory. The victory's been won in Christ. 
But we see that when we read about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, like Job, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces, Isaiah 53, 3. In 1 John 3, 8, we are told very clearly that Jesus suffered to destroy the works of the devil. We remember what the works of the devil are. He started in the Garden of Eden, and his goal was, and is, and always will be, to separate the creature from the Creator. His work is sin, and sin, in essence, is rebellion against the Creator in thought, word, or deed. And so as we continue in Job 2 and see the next chapter of the book and the next chapter of Job's suffering kick in, we do so knowing that this is a great contest between God and Satan, and that Job is God's man, as Christ will be the ultimate man, in showing God's victory over evil. But we begin with what seems like very ordinary language in chapter 2, verse 1. Again, we are told, there was a day, just a regular day, when the sons of God, those spiritual beings, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? An exact parallel, an exact echo to what happened in chapter 1. And Satan answered the Lord and said, in his boastful voice again, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The unopposed master of the world. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Satan, But have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without Reason. So this is clearly the sequel. It clearly wants us to pick up what we already studied this morning, but to move forward in this new chapter. Satan again, same scene. God again, same challenge. And it shows us all over again that despite the devil's boast, our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. The passage reminds us of Job's good things. He maintained his righteousness. But it also shows us that God wasn't done with the devil. And so God incites him again to do something. You know, for poor Job, this is going to come across real hard. But even for Job, there's going to be great reward. And I kind of hate in the sense that it's so delayed that way. But next week, we're going to get to the rewards that come. But here we've got to see one more sort of dark chapter. And we just recognize that what Job had done that was won the victory in chapter 1 was that he grieved in a godly way. He recognized that he was going through suffering and he was willing to grieve. He was willing to, to cry out to God. But he turned in his grief to worship. That's the right response of the heart. He turned to worship. He didn't know why what was happening was happening. So he turned to worship. And then he trusted God. Just like Jesus would do in Gethsemane. Take this cup away from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then, finally, he blessed God. And in all this, he didn't sin or charge God with any wrong. God was glorified in the, in the submission of Job and the humiliation of Satan. But once again, the adversary rises to the challenge. And this time, he doesn't go to what is outside of us, but what is inside of us. He goes after Job's health. Look at verse 4. Of chapter 2. Then Satan, the accuser, answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give 
for his life. Now we need to give the devil his due. He is a master of perception. He understands and is a keen observer of the human condition. Remember that for however long the earth has existed, thousands of years, he has watched. He has learned. He knows. And he recognizes a maxim, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Now, we don't have to look very long for proof of that today. Not politically, but you will recognize that all kinds of things have happened in results, in, in, in reflection on this pandemic, where Canadians in particular have been absolutely willing to give up anything. They've been willing to give up their jobs, willing to give up connection with family, willing to give up their fundamental rights guaranteed in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. They're willing to give up anything our politicians can think of if just the government can save us from the danger. Skin for skin. A man will give up anything for his life. Christ shows very different patterns. He was willing to give up all those things. He gave up his family in heaven. He left the Father in his place above. He gave up his rights. He humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He did all the same things, but he didn't do it to save his own flesh. He did it to give his life for us. Paul reminds us that out of love, God demonstrated his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sin is anathema to God. Christ died for those he cannot bear. <laughs> the unlovely, the unlovable. In our reading of Philippians, we are reminded that we are to have the same love. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's Philippians 2. Sorry, that's not the one we read. But Having made his accusations, given his maxim, Satan now argues. Now, he says, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh then. He'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Now, we can really emphasize something really interesting in this last verse, in verse uh, 6. We never have to live in fear of the devil, despite all the stuff I've talked about, about how powerful he is, because God is greater. Notice he has to ask permission in every case here. Martin Luther, commenting on this passage, says, the devil is God's devil. But what I find particularly interesting is this really fascinating little word, spare. Okay, says God, he's in your hand, only spare his life. The Hebrew word shamar, which is translated as spare, means to keep, to guard, or to preserve. It is ironic. But Satan is actually cast by God into the role of savior and guardian and protector of Job's life. It's not just hurt him so far but no further. It's no, 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 go ahead and hurt him. But you must sustain and protect his life supernaturally. He's a false god, as we talked about this morning, but he has godlike powers, and he has to use them to be Job's savior. That's how much God controls him. He has to do exactly what God wants. Remember what is said in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
Job's health trial, however, is going to be the most distressing of his life. And any of you who have gone through health issues know how challenging they can be. Every day we hear of people survive and even thrive through adversity. Tragic when we see loss in the family, but people move on eventually with their lives. But we so often hear the refrain, at least you have your health. You have to live your life. Your dearly beloved departed would want you to move on. But what about when we no longer have our health and we can no longer live our life? That's when the real challenge comes. Now, on the grand scale of things, I suppose it's much smaller tremendously than what happened to Job. But a number of years ago, I was injured pretty badly and I had a lot of discomfort, well, pain. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be fine. I'll just tolerate this and eventually I'll heal because that's what happens. Bodies get better. Well, it turned out that first day I was able to sort of grit my teeth and just sort of hold myself up on things. And, um, and I thought, oh, this is terrible, but I'm going to make it through. I'm fine. I'm fine. All night I couldn't sleep. And at one point in the night I had to go to the bathroom, but everything was beginning to seize up. And getting out of bed, I found that I, I couldn't really move and I ended up collapsed on the floor and I couldn't get up. At some point, Carmen found me. <laughs> You know, now it's kind of funny. At the time, I remember it being quite inconvenient. But uh, eventually, I said, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll be good. And Carmen convinced me, no, you need to see a doctor. <laughs> well, she's a wise lady. I saw a doctor. I got help. I got better. But it took a while. It took some medicine. It took some treatment. And I'm very glad that I got the help I got. But the thing that I can remember, I still remember that night so very clearly, was the total overwhelming nature of pain. It just consumed me. I couldn't think about anything else. I remember that Abby was really little at the time, and she'd come in to talk to me. Oh, are you okay, Daddy? And I remember looking at her and going, you're totally fine. Now get out of here. <laughs> no time. I couldn't even deal with her. I could kind of fake endurance for a moment, but that was about it. So having had that small experience, when I look at what happened to Job, boy, oh, boy, look at verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself and sat in the ashes. Scholars are pretty clear. They think that what happened to Job was he was afflicted with a kind of leprosy known as elephantiasis. Something like that. I can't say it right. Ask your doctor. Anyway, I looked it up. It looks terrible. Uh, it's named this name because you get rough skin and swollen limbs that become more animal-like in your appearance. But here's what one commentator says when it looks at it. I, I also looked it up in a medical dictionary, but it's so gross I didn't want to quote it. So I'm just going with the theological definition. It's better. <laughs> but this is what the commentator says. The disease required constant attention. The infection and the pus had to be scraped away with a piece of broken pottery in order to prevent the spread of the infection. The skin was so disfigured that even Job's friends didn't recognize him. That's 2.12. The book will add that the disease afflicted him inwardly, giving him foul breath and a loathsome smell. The sores bred worms. They opened and ran and closed and tightened. He was tormented with dreams. He felt like he was choking. His bones were racked with burning pain, and he was not able to rise from his place. That's 1918. When I read that, it made me think of my pain. The disease was incurable, and it would last for years, leaving the patient longing for death. Satan 
seeks to find his victory in extremes, doesn't he? He didn't, he didn't go half out in chapter 1. He went for everything. Now when he goes for health, when God says, okay, you can hit him, he went for the maximum. He went for the thing that he knew was calculated to put someone into long-term pain so that they would desperately long for death. And that's exactly what we find in Job. I read you those passages from chapter 3 where he literally longs for death. This was very similar to what was going on in Jesus' life at the time Satan went after him. We talked about this before. But what he went through in his suffering, again, was extremes. Satan could have arranged for him to die some other way. Mind you, he had to do it exactly the way God wanted him to. But one of the things I find most fascinating, we talked about this morning, Gethsemane, where Jesus was under such psychological pressure and such physical pressure that his capillaries burst within him and he appeared to be bleeding out of his sweat glands. But then we consider what happens in Matthew 27 when he is given a lashing. He's, he's scourged. This was a form of torture. According to one dictionary I read, to flog or to scourge was a punishment that was inflicted on slaves and provincials after a sentence of death had been pronounced on them. So in the case of Jesus before the crucifixion. And I went and looked at it a little more. It, it was meant to kill. But it was meant to kill slowly, painfully, and horrifically. So they would take you, and they had these whips that had these pieces of metal on the end of them in the, kind of a, a flayed-out leather ends with all these different little sharp pieces of metal, and they would whip you with it. And it would snap half the strokes of 39, would go down the back, and they would snap the ribs clean. They would wrap around under the armpits. They would flap around in the soft flesh in the, in the front and the neck, and it wasn't unusual for them to take out an eye or a piece of the face. And then they turned you around and began to work the front. It would expose some of the internal organs. And the loss of blood alone typically killed the victim. They stopped at 49 because a good percentage of people made it that far. And then they left you. And typically, they died shortly after that from infection and pain. So when Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah in Isaiah 52, 14, he says of the Lord, his appearance was so marred that it became beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. I think Job gives us a really good picture of what that would have been like in this horrible disease. But why did Jesus do all this again? 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He did it to destroy the works of the devil and to reconcile us to God through the cross. Christ suffered that we might live. He suffered that the devil might be destroyed. And Job paints us a picture of a man enduring under suffering in the same way. Even as the devil entered into Judas and manipulated the Roman system, so he has entered into Job's world and sought to alienate Job from God and God from Job. That's what he does. Thus, Job is at war with the devil on God's behalf, but he doesn't know it. And you and I will have no idea what's going on in our suffering as well. 
So how on earth do we live? Well, the Bible tells us that this might be the case. We might be doing something in God's plan. We will be doing something in God's plan. We just won't necessarily know what it is. And that's where our text today that we had read, our theme verses from Philippians come in. When it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, it's an interesting turn of phrase that Paul uses in, in Philippians 1.27. It's actually a word for citizenship. Philippi was a really unique city in that it was a Roman colony in Greece. And so the, the Philippians were Roman citizens. And they really valued their citizenship. And the Greeks around them were a hostile culture to Rome, but they had to in, maintain their dignity and their presentation of what it meant to be a Roman citizen so as to win over the Greek culture. And Paul calls on Christians to do the same thing. You're citizens of heaven, he says in a little bit earlier passage. And he says, so let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your, your life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, having one mind, striving side by side for the gospel, not afraid in anything by your opponents, even if your opponent is the devil himself. Again, just to be clear, Job's an exceptional case, but Christians are to expect that we are going to be opposed, spiritually opposed in this world, and when we do, we need to trust God and make sure our life is worthy of the gospel because we are citizens of heaven. The Bible comforts us in many places. God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation will also provide the way of escapes that you may be able to endure. He assures us in Romans 8.28 that no matter what happens, it is always going to pan out for our good. But there are two more reflections that I think are really important. All humans suffer. All human beings will suffer. Man is born to suffer as the sparks fly upward. It is a reality. Whether it is because of racial persecution, gender discrimination, child abuse, famine, war, illness, injury, the pandemic, aging, all humans suffer. The difference is purpose and result. The believer only suffers only suffers, can only suffer, if it is God's will. Not one hair will fall from the believer's head without God working it for good. The unbeliever just suffers for no purpose. If he does not turn to Christ, he will suffer for all time in the future. For the believer, blessing is always ahead. Even for the cross, we learn from the author of Hebrews, that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Paul wrote in Romans 8.18 that the light momentary affliction of suffering in this present world is nothing compared to the glory that should be revealed in us. We have hope. Job seemed to have hope in his final challenge. Even though he slay me, I will yet trust in him, Job said. In Job's illness and pain, we see the very worst Satan can do. He cannot take away the hope of eternal blessing. But as a master strategist, Satan does it in the most complete way possible. And this is a really helpful point for us, I think. Look at Job 2.9. Then his wife came and said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. There's no hope. There's no hope. Just give up. Just 
die. Just give it up. I don't know that they had uh, medical assistance in dying laws in ancient uh, Uz, but surely his wife would have helped hook Job up with the right physician to get this taken care of. That's what was going on here. She was saying, finish it. Job's integrity, remember, is the very point in which this war with Satan is being fought. God says, look at Job and his integrity. Satan says, I'll take his integrity away if I can get his health. And look who comes in now. The person who should be his closest supporter, his strength, his comfort, his consolation. And she says, just give up that integrity. Just give it up. Wow. Now, before we give her a bad rap, remember what she's gone through. We've only really looked from Job's perspective, but she had all the same things. She was a woman of wealth and power and has now lost all. She lost the benefits of her husband's empire. Job's children were her children too, and she has lost all her children. Now her husband is wailing day and night in horrific pain, and she is in deep, deep grief. We're told by the studies that marriages very often cannot survive the loss of a child. Yet here we have the loss of ten. So we want to make sure that we have some compassion, even for poor Job's wife. But we also recognize that Satan likes to use those closest to us to make us stumble. Satan used Eve to get at Adam. Satan used Peter as a tempter for Christ. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and be killed. And after three days, I'll rise again. And Peter said, whoa, far be it from you, Lord. You can't do this. Stop talking that way. Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus said, suffering is in the future for God's glory. And Peter said, no, 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 no. You see, the kingdom of God is a place of glory where no suffering happens. And Jesus said, no, no, you're not thinking like God. You're thinking like Satan. Wow. Now, Peter will be reconciled to Christ, won't he? Adam and Eve, they make it. They continue on. Job and his wife are going to be restored. So this is not like this is a very evil person. This is actually your friend, your true friend. And Satan uses her to really get at Job. What a corrupt guy Satan is. Job's response pretty much mirrors Christ in verse 10. He looked at her and says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive calamity? Some translations say evil. I'm not sure what you're reading. But it's the good and the bad. Evil is meant in the sense, in this case, of like natural evil. And then in all this, we read again, Job did not sin with his lips. You know what Job was doing here? He was crediting God. He was praising God. He was giving God the honor due to him as God. He says, you speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? Boy, what a reversal that is on what we know as the health and wealth gospel, isn't it? <laughs> wow. I remember talking to someone who... Uh, who, who, whose wife had, had uh, suffered with cancer, and they had gone to one of these healing services, and the person there healed his wife, but his wife ended up succumbing to her cancer and died. And it really shook his faith, and he had left the church. And we were talking, I was trying to share the gospel with him. He was a friend, and I knew him, and I was trying to share the gospel and its encouragement with him. And he said, how can I ever trust God? He, he, he let my wife die and all this sort of thing. So what are you talking about? And he, he laid out the story and told me that after she had died, he went back to this uh, faith pastor, uh, leader, whatever, I don't want to call him a pastor, but went to him, and the guy said, well, the problem there was your, your wife simply didn't have enough faith. 
she had enough faith, then she would have lived. Just nonsense, just nonsense. Job in the Bible says quite opposite. Shall we receive good from God and not also receive calamity? Jesus said to his disciples, Look, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The sons of God, the spiritual beings in heaven, are active and at work, many to help us, some to harm. There is a battle that is going on. Jesus says, look, what's important is not what happens in your physical life here. If you have to give up your life to follow me, then you should do so, because that's when the eternal blessings will come. Obviously, these are challenging topics, but they really help us to really get a perspective, I think, before we were there. Someone has said all people are in one of three places. They've either just come out of some suffering, are currently in some suffering, or are about to go into some suffering. <laughs> I think that's true. When I was 20, I used to read a lot of these things and think, oh boy, this is some real downer stuff in Job. Or These Psalms, look, all he does is whine and complain. Like, come on. <laughs> and then you go through a little more life, and then you realize, wow, I've had some bad things happen. Everybody's had some bad things happen. And then you go back and read one of those psalms and you go, oh, I, this just resonates with me. And you can just feel what the psalmist is feeling. And then you think, oh, I'm getting old. <laughs> well, Job at this point was ready to follow God still. He did not sin. He praised God. He recognized who God was. He trusted God and he continued to do so. In many ways, the themes are very similar to this morning, but they, they come at a whole different angle. We can look at chapter 1 and say, yeah, Job endured through calamity, good. Now we see Job endured through his health and his suffering. If we are truly prepared to be like Job, we will know that Job and the Lord Jesus Christ showed us the path, that God can have a plan even in our suffering, and we may not see it. We may not see it. There will come a day for each one of you, there will come a day for me when we're going to die. This life is temporary. And dying's not pleasant. And when we come to that place, we will know that we have a hope that endures that death. Maybe a death with some suffering. It may be a death that happens peacefully in our sleep. We don't know. But whatever it is, God has a plan. And right now our world is suffering in the grips of this pandemic and we don't know when it's going to end or what is going on, but we can trust that God has a plan. Now this is sort of the dark and dreary and depressing chapters of Job. And yes, there's this great glorious turnaround in the end. But I think it really behooves us to just let the feeling of these chapters sit with us and to remember that we need to have that same attitude. Shall we not receive good from God and not also receive calamity? But we know that one day he will wipe away every tear from the believer's eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away, Revelation 21.4. And God promises, promises this, listen to these words in Revelation 21.7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. He who overcomes. We overcome in Christ, not in our own strength 
but we have to overcome. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Heavenly Father, we know that we live in a world of suffering. And as much as dwelling on it can be painful, it also reminds us that you actually understand that, that you know that, that's not a surprise to you, and that you still give us hope. It is in this world that we have hope in you. It is in the next world that our hope is realized. I just pray, Lord, that for everyone who is here tonight, that we would have a deeper appreciation now by the power of your Holy Spirit of the true meaning of the gospel for us, that we have hope no matter what happens. That like Job, we might not understand what is happening in our life, but that we can trust ourselves to the faithful creator. Because you will win, and you will give us ultimate hope. 